This is the Ed Milet Show. Welcome back to Max Out, everybody. I'm so excited. First off, he's one of my favorite humans walking the earth. We were just sharing that with one another. He's only the second person to OE to ever appear on the show twice. So that's a pretty daggum big deal. And I just love this man. First off, I love experts. I love the best at what they do. And he is the best at what he does. And the first time he came on, we were talking about his book, Sleep Smarter. Today, we're going to talk about eating smarter. His new book is called Eat Smarter. But let me tell you what separates this man. Research. This is not just another conversation we're going to have about food or nutrition. This man is a research savant and can recall data and research and statistics in a way that will just blow your mind. He also has a voice as deep as mine and a body better than mine, much better. My friend, Sean Stevenson, welcome to the show, my friend. Already, I receive it. I don't agree. I don't agree, but I receive it. Thank you, man. I, I appreciate you, brother. Like I said, you're one of my favorite humans and you always bring the best out of people. So that's why I'm so excited to have this conversation. Well, you are the best. Uh, you guys know about the Model Health show that he has, number one in the world. This book is going to blow up by the time you're listening to this. It's already blown up. It's already number one pre-sale. And um, I just got to tell you, this man's remarkable. So let's talk about food. This is going to be one of these shows, guys, where you're going to hear things you've never heard before as it relates to food, how it impacts your body. One of the things that fascinates me about this book, too, is it, there's things that will apply for everybody. For me, it's, you know, rebooting your metabolism. It's rebooting your hormones. That, that part of it was fascinating just for me because I thought I already ate pretty well. But I want to talk about first, like, our relationships with food. Just discuss that for a second, why it matters. You talk about the relationship with food. You talk about there's kind of four different dieting types. Give us a little insight into that. Well, you know, being in this industry, so I've been in this field for almost 20 years and 10 years in clinical practice as well. And one of the things that I saw consistently, and it took me a while to really get it. When people think about nutrition and diet in our culture, it's usually related to weight. It's just something that is a cognitive connection in our minds. And I think it's really done us a huge disservice because food literally makes up every single cell in our bodies. You know, the very brain cells that are able to have this transduction and this communication that's taking place right now, the bones in our ears that are picking up the vibration from our voices and sending those electrical signals through our bodies. All of these things are driven by the food that we eat. Our hearts are made of the food that we eat, our gastrointestinal tract, the list goes on and on. The very things that enable us to have thought, feeling, and emotion is made from food. So the conversation is so much bigger than this pithy little box of weight. And once we can understand that, it puts more legs under our belief system about how powerful food is. Mm. And so with that said, I dug into the data and I want to find out all the dynamic ways that food affects our lives that most folks have no idea about. Mm. And some of the most shocking things that I came across were how food directly dictates our ability to perspective take and to have patience our ability to even kind of control our aggression, right? So our proclivity towards violence, all of these things are affected by our nutrition. And the data just blew my mind. And also just for your audience, especially, man, the data on how specific nutrients can drive better attention, better focus, better productivity, and even controls our memory. It's all based on food. So it's such a powerful thing. And I wanted to expand the conversation. What's, what are a few of those nutrients that can do that in a beneficial way, just off the top? So one of the most important, especially if we're talking about in the realm of cognitive performance, yeah. and this was published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, the brain is very fascinating in that it is the most powerful entity in the known universe, right? It is infinitely powerful. And there's this thing in personal development that just kind of got started a while ago that we're only using... 5% of our brain or 10% of our brain, but that's more in the realm of personal development. It's not neuroscience. We use hundred percent. There's not like a little recess, a little corner off in your brain with the dunce cap where they're not getting any activity. We use our whole brain, but we just don't use it very well. We didn't get an owner's manual on how it works. And being that it's the most powerful entity in the known universe, the irony and poetry of life is that it's also the most delicate. All right. It's about the consistency of soft butter. And so being that this is a case, it's the only organ that is fully encased in protective bone. So you got like a built-in helmet, but also internally, we have a protective 
kind of built-in security system because the brain is so delicate, the blood-brain barrier was developed to protect our brain. And so the blood-brain barrier, if you want to think about this, we're going to talk about neuronutrition, the things that actually are able to get into the brain, because what we eat doesn't directly go to our brain. Okay. There's like a toll booth, all right? And the guard at the toll booth is like Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Like he's not allowing anybody through this is not supposed to be there. And so those gates, what I call them these kind of, uh, uh, kind of express pass toll booths to drive right into the brain. Certain nutrients have that capability. One of those I want folks to know about, they've heard of this before, but we're gonna go deeper, is DHA and EPA, all right? So these are in the category of essential omega-3 fatty acids. But to take this a step further, so the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition found that increasing our intake of DHA directly, radically improves our memory and our ability to focus, mm. all right? Versus a placebo. So this is a randomized controlled, placebo controlled trial, randomized placebo controlled trial. So the very best gold standard. And here's the thing. Another study coupled with that one found that folks who had the lowest amount of DHA in their diet had accelerated brain shrinkage, all right? Shrinkage, this is- this is the opposite of optimal performance. This is the kind of shrinkage. This is not the, like it's cold outside shrinkage. This is like <laughs> shrinkage that causes major problems. Right. And so I wanna really encourage all of us to be proactive from this day forward, really to get in. And the, what they found in the study was just a little bit more than a tablespoon is gonna be enough. I'm sorry, a teaspoon, just a little more than a teaspoon, 1.2 teaspoons of DHA and EPA. And so that's relatively easy to grab in our diets. And of course, we could talk about so many different other nutrients. But when folks think about DHA and EPA, we generally think about fish, uh, yeah. fatty fish, particularly so salmon, uh, mackerel, but there's three times more DHA in fish eggs. So caviar, salmon really? roe, one of the most abundant sources, if not the most abundant natural source of DHA and EPA. Whoa. And how does this show up in the data also? There's a study was published in the journal Neurology. They found that folks who eat just one seafood meal per week do in fact perform significantly better on cognitive skills tests, even later on in life, all right? So we've got that, but then what if you're doing a vegan protocol, vegetarian protocol, yeah. you don't wanna exclude anybody. Eat Smarter is a unifier, but I want folks to know that plant sources of omega-3s are not the same. It's not DHA and EPA. It's so important to your body. Your body can convert some of the ALA because that's the type of omega-3 yep. you find in plants. Mm -hmm. It can convert some of the, that ALA into DHA and EPA, but it loses about 80% in the process. And so you're going to have to like beer bong, chia seeds and hemp seeds into your body all day long to get the amount you really need for your brain to thrive. And so outside of that, we've got whole food source fish. Fish oil has the most clinical evidence. About 99% of the studies are on fish oil. Krill oil is the next step. And it's really starting to pick up lots of data on this now. And krill oil is a microscopic shrimp. So wherever folks lie on their ethics, because even if they hear the word shrimp, they might be like, I'm not eating the shrimp, but it's microscopic, microscopic shrimp. And it's really rich in astaxanthin. But if we're going full uh, vegan source algae, I want folks to get themselves a concentrated algae oil, but be aware there isn't a lot of clinical evidence to support its efficacy yet. We do know the DHA and EPA is there. But we have that spectrum, but I want folks to know today, moving forward, how important DHA is for their performance. So good. I told you all, you're going to hear things you've never heard before. And every single thing is backed with data and science. I mean, every single thing. By the way, Eat Smarter is a program, guys, it's like a 30-day program to kind of reboot these things and recalibrate. And so that's why you need the book. In spite of what you're going to hear today, you're going to have bits and pieces that are going to give you great information, but you get the program. You really need the book. I want to go back just for a second because I'm just curious about this. You talk about four dieting types. I don't know what that means. Like, do you mean there's four personality types, four ways people approach the way they eat? What, did you, what do you mean by that? So this is something that you know with your work is that human beings, the number one driving force of the human psyche is to stay congruent with the ideas that it carries of itself. Yes. All right. It's the number one driving force of the human psyche. We do things, everything that we do in our life is based on our perception of what we believe or who we believe ourselves to be. Everything that we do, that we think, all of our feelings are in alignment with who we believe ourselves to be. And so what I found over the years is that we tend to fall into, and we're, we're infinitely dynamic, by the way. 
However, there are some generalizations that we can make. Okay. And so I found that folks tend to fall into four different personality types when it comes to diet. And there's a lot of sports analogies throughout the book. You know, we just want to make it yeah. relatable and make it fun. And I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. So, you know, well noted to be, well, that's what we call it around there, baseball heaven. No disrespect to any other uh, baseball fan. It's different in St. Louis though, brother. I know, I know. It is, it's, it's the whole vibe, you know? So we have these basic uh, diet personality types. And the first one is the, the person who swings for the fences, all right? This is the person that any new thing comes along, they go full force, they go all in. And they, this is a personality type that tends to get a lot more results than the average person because they do that. But they can also strike out a lot more. And when they do that, their percentage goes down and it could be depressing for them if they start to strike out too much. And so if you have that tendency to jump into a new diet program, you hear about a new diet, new fitness program, new this or that, and you jump in without getting a little bit more prepared, without waiting to strike and to, to hit the right pitch, then you can, you can end up in a situation where this personality type doesn't perform at the level that it could. All right. So that's just one. And I'm just going to hit some general points with these. I go more in depth and eat smarter. The other type are the folks who are waiting for the perfect pitch. All right. So they get caught looking. All right. So they are literally waiting for the exact, for everything to get to be perfect, for everything to be in alignment. These are the folks who they hear about a new uh, kickboxing class and they want to get the, the perfect shoes. They got to get the right outfit. They got to get the Jean-Claude Van Damme t-shirt. They got everything has got to be right before they take action. And before you know it, they can even get, they can even lose track of the process already, right? They've already out-researched themselves to the point that they do nothing, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like the, the paradox of choice, yeah. you know, if you look at uh, Barry Schwartz's work. So this is another personality type. So if you tend to wait to take action to your detriment, and so we want to encourage these folks to just be a little bit more assertive, you know, and cultivate these, these habits. And so we talk about some of the, this, but it's also a good strength because these folks can spot details that nobody else does. We just want to use that to your advantage. The other personality type are the, what, I, what I call easy out. All right, they're the easy out type. They're just going to come out swinging. They're going to hit, they might hit, you know, hit it up, uh, you know, right over to the shortstop. You know, they're just going to come out easy out. Oh, this guy's coming up to the plate, he's an easy out. These are folks who in any type of, they get involved, they say yes, they sign up, they get started. But when any resistance happens, they quit. When anything that's inconvenient happens and without fail, and this is something I talk about in the book because I, so many of these publishers are like, they try to pressure you to making it look like everything is easy. And it's absolute garbage. It's so it's so wrong. It is so wrong. Stuff is going to happen. Life is going to happen. Problems are going to come up. This year is a great demonstration of that. And so we have to cultivate a little bit more resilience, especially for this personality type, and actually to expect that challenges are going to happen, but not in a bad way, but to know that when this challenge is coming up, this is going to actually help to develop a character trait that I need, right? There's a gift in it. And so those are the three uh, general and one, the last one is the all around player. All right. And I use my friend Ozzie Smith as an example. And what a, to be able to say a statement like that is just cool. I just got chills. I freaking know Ozzie Smith, you know? <laughs> the so, greatest defensive shortstop by a mile of all time, everybody. Uh, so you know. Oh my gosh. Yeah. We first met at the gym, you know, and he was there. He's like, I think he was in a, uh, you know, early 60s at the time. And he's in there just doing it like he's yeah. in there doing it inspiring looking good feeling good so inspiring and um then we just start bumping into each other all over the place even on flights you know it's so nuts but what he he was known for was that part the defensive prowess but for him when i talked with him he wanted to be known as an all-around player and so he worked his butt off because he worked his butt off to become the greatest defensive shortstop but he trained he started lifting weights when it was not in fashion he got stronger. He worked on his base running and he ended up winning the Silver Slugger Award, which was the top for uh, at your position and offensively. And also he hit one of the most epic home runs of all time. Say that. Yep. He had 2,500 hits, you know, in his career, just absolutely incredible all around player. We have all of these personality types in us, by the way, 
but we do want to strive to kind of tap into our all-around player. But there could be a downfall there with the all-around player if they get out of balance. Because what tends to work for all-around player is a formula. Like they've got something dialed in. But if they start to go too hard in one dimension, something can start to lag. That's me. So these are the some general personality types that we talk about. It's so good because what I'm thinking as you're talking about those, I'm going to steal it, number one. And uh, it's not just, <laughs> it's not just your relationship with food. It's your relationship in relationships. It's your, Absolutely. as an entrepreneur, are you an easy out? You know, are you an all-around player? You know, it's, uh, do you constantly chase different paths all the time, full force? Like, that's brilliant work. I want to talk about stuff for me so everyone gets to listen in for me while you coach me. I've been a calorie guy forever. And as I'm reading your work, I'm like, well, I know he knows more than I do. So I think a lot of people are calorie counters, calorie people. It's, I wouldn't call it an obsession of mine, but literally last night I was like, I ate clean all day, had a little peanut butter whiskey out back. And I'm like, I wonder how many calories are in this damn whiskey right now. I blew the whole day. So let's talk calories, Get, educate me and everybody, please. Absolutely. Now. This is one of the most important conversations that the average person needs to know about. It's so um, pervasive in our culture. When I went to my conventional university nutritional science class, I was taught that the calorie was the, the head honcho, the, the monarch, the warden. And I use the word warden very intentionally because it becomes like a psychological prison for many folks trying to manage and, and count calories. And so I want folks to know from the very beginning, and this is one of the questions I've programmed myself to ask is like, where did that come from? Where did that idea come from? What's the root of that thing? It's such a pervasive thing in our culture, but where did it come from? And so I went back and studied the history of the calorie and trust and believe there's no calorie symbols on the Egyptian hieroglyphics, you know? Hippocrates wasn't like wearing his toga, like you guys really need to count your calories. It wasn't a thing. Nobody was looking for the calorie when it was discovered. People just ate food. Can you imagine a time when you just ate food? Uh, you know, it's <laughs> so things change. And when it actually changed, this was when the calorie was discovered, it was not used in the nutritional domain. It was used in physics and engineering. And it ultimately made its parlay into the world of nutritional science uh, thanks to a guy named Wilbur Atwater, which he can be a little bit of a side note, although we do use an Atwater system for what's on calorie labels, okay. which as we'll talk about today, this is going to blow your mind when okay. you find this stuff out. But the person who really popularized the focus of calories in our culture was a woman named Dr. Lulu Hunt Peters. And this was in the earlier part of the 1900s. And this was around the time of, of World War One, And she wrote a nutritional bestseller and it focused on the key to calories. And it sold over 2 million copies at this time. So it's just like literally everybody and their mother had this book. Yeah. And so, and now this is very important what I'm about to say. This was the moment when food was no longer this multifaceted, dynamic, powerful entity that creates every cell in our body, every hormone, every neurotransmitter, everything about us. It made the shift from being this multifaceted, dynamic entity to being numbers. It made this shift from being food to being numbers. And she said, from now on, you will no longer eat food. You will eat calories of food. She said, you will no longer eat one slice of bread. You'll eat hundred calories of bread. You'll no longer eat a slice of pie. You'll eat 350 calories of pie. And she relented that as long as a woman of her height maintains the diet, a diet of 1200 calories a day, she will be able to manage her weight easily. The problem is, she battled with her weight her entire life, really? all right? So she's already in this state. And the same thing in my nutritional science class, my professor was overweight and he was teaching me these principles, but he was doing the principles. It's just when the principles are not working, it's very hard intellectually, if you believe a thing on paper that this thing's supposed to work. So to, to wrap the story up, and this is very important. This also began, she initiated the relationship of, connecting food with morality. And so she started to tie in basically that if you cannot maintain your health, maintain your weight as a character defect, it has nothing to do with the calorie count. It's something wrong with you. And she started to use words like punishment and sin in relationship to food. And also being that this was a time of food rationing, she used hunger, hunger as a lever. 
And I would have patients I work with for years, folks coming in and they believe that if they're not hungry, they're not doing it right. And it started with Dr. Lulu Hunt Peters because she said that for every hunger pang you feel, you should have a double joy knowing that you're saving the hunger pangs and another person, all right? So strive to be hungry. But now we know today that when your body is hungry, when you're calling out, when you're not a normal hunger, but like a chronic state of hunger and cravings, something is wrong. And a big walk away point for everybody today is that chronic nutrient deficiency leads to chronic hunger. Chronic nutrient deficiency leads to chronic cravings. Chronic nutrient deficiency leads to chronic weight problems. And this is what we know today. So that was the the root of it. And That's today, one of the most powerful things past- I've ever heard, Sean. Right, what you just said. Ever heard is that 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 is an indicator of a nutritional deficiency. You're saying in your body when you're having these cravings, it's your body saying, "I need something." Absolutely, absolutely. We evolved having something called it's called post ingestive feedback. All right, post ingestive feedback. So through our evolution, whenever we eat a food. Your body is like in internally like taking notes. It's like breaking out a sticky note and like writing, you know, maybe you just ate a particular food and it's like, oh, I just picked up some boron. I picked up some copper. I picked up some lysine. I picked up some magnesium. That, and it associates flavors are basically like food labels. And so this, there, we talk about the science of flavor in the book as well. Yeah. And so in a normal circumstance, our bodies have a relationship with the food that we eat to get the nutrients that we want. But today- Food manufacturers have hijacked that machinery. And so we might eat, you know, whatever, a sandwich, processed food uh, uh, sandwich, you know, go hit up Subway. And we might eat that food, but then our body is craving. We have the hunger because we need magnesium. We're deficient in copper. We're deficient in amino acids. And then in comes a particular food that we eat. And for me, I'll just, I'm going to use the example that I'm actually thinking about. When... For myself, like once a week, I would go to 7-Eleven and I would get a nacho with chili and cheese. And it's already a problem when you got to pump your chili out of a pump. I mean, just the that whole reality is twisted, you know? And so I'm, my body is crying out. It's called creating this hunger because I'm deficient in all these nutrients. Omega-3 fatty acids, like we talked about earlier, your body will signal you. And through our evolution, your biology would know which foods to go and target. But now I'm just, I'm hungry. All I know is I'm hungry and I go and throw this in and I might have something in my, in my belly, but I'm hungry again soon after, yes. right? I'm nev- never really satisfying that hunger because I'm not giving my body the raw materials it's calling for. Mm-hmm. And so what I want to share today, if we can get into it, is there's five things that actually control what calories do in your body. It's above, it's like an epigenetic force controlling calories beneath it. Calories is not the king. Long ago, they used something called a bomb calorimeter to measure how many calories are in a food. Basically, that's taking a a little box, putting the food inside the box and putting that box into another box that's filled with water and then using electrical energy to incinerate and completely burn the food and incinerate it. And they would measure how much energy it took to warm that water up was the amount of calories that was in that food. That's what they would use. Kind of very dynamic process. They do not do that anymore. That is not what's done. And what they use now is just, it's called the Atwater system. And basically food manufacturers just do a little math and slap whatever on that label. Really? You know, just knowing some basic tenets. Yeah. So this is, again, what I was taught in my university classes was, you know, we've got four calories per gram of protein, four calories per gram of carbohydrates, nine calories per gram of fats, seven uh, calories per gram of alcohol. And so basically just taking those numbers is doing a little bit of math. Okay. All right. So if you know you've got 20 grams of protein in here, you just multiply 20 times four, throw that on the box. Wow. It's completely ignoring the complexity of human digestion. And even the bomb colorometer completely ignores the digestion of human digestion. Everybody knows Ed is the bomb. You are the bomb, but you're not a bomb colorometer. Your body doesn't just incinerate all of that stuff. Sure. There are indigestible factors to that food as well. So here are the things that control what calories actually do in your body that we really need to be more mindful of. Wow, that's my I use an acronym, it's called the DM, all right? Because it goes down in the DM. I don't know if you know about this ad, but it goes down in the DM. Some people are gonna know what I mean. <laughs> what the kids say is what the kids yeah, say. So I know, my kids do. 
All right, so the T is for the type of food itself controls what calories do in your body. This is something we would say in nutritional circles, like people that are playing at a high level for years. It's like, it's not just the calories, it's the quality of the calories. Now we know for certain, and this is highlighted in a study that I feature in Eat Smarter, and this was published uh, by Food and Nutrition Research. This was fascinating. The, the scientists tracked the energy expenditure, how your body actually associated with the calories when you eat a meal of whole foods versus a meal of processed foods. And it blew my mind. So what they did was they had test subjects to consume a sandwich, which was cons um, consisting of whole grain bread and cheddar cheese. This was deemed to be the whole food sandwich, all right? Okay. And then they had the processed food group to consume a meal, a sandwich of white bread and cheese product, all right? And cheese product, that's Kraft. Kraft cannot legally call itself cheese. It's cheese slices, right? Yeah. There's not enough cheese in the cheese, man. It's crazy. Hey, wow. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so they have, they have them either consume the whole food sandwich or the processed food sandwich. Now here's the rub. They're the same amount of calories. The two sandwiches are the exact same amount of calories, same amount of proteins, same amount of carbs, same amount of fats. On paper, they should be the same. But here's what happened. When folks ate the processed food sandwich, they had a 50% reduction in calorie burn after eating that meal. Wow. All right? wow. Okay. It created hormonal clogs. And so their metabolism literally shifted and it was more stingy in holding on to these calories. It created the situation where there's this dysbiosis. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that is, but it threw off the metabolism. And this is the nature of the processed food paradigm that the truth is, you know, many folks listening, I know that they've up-leveled their nutrition for sure, but it is such a pervasive thing in our culture. We have, no, we really can't even wrap our minds around this. Right now here in America, over 200 million people are overweight or obese. The predominant food that folks are eating, and I know this because I came from this, just about every one of my meals for weeks, months at a time would be consisting of processed foods. Yeah. So trust and believe there are people that are, that are living this life. So number one, the type of food determines what calories actually do in your body. That's the T. All right. So the DM, this is the acronym. So for the H, how the food is prepared determines what calories do in your body. And to give a quick example of that, uh, we think about uh, kale, right? Kale is super popular right now. Kale, you know, it's on t-shirts, all that. Kale is a superstar. Now, if the kale are baby, like quote, baby kale, you're able to extract more nutrients from that because the cell wall isn't as sturdy. But as the kale develops, it's harder to extract calories from that kale. Not to mention, you know, there's different dynamics with the other micronutrients involved, but that's a different conversation. Now, if we cook the kale, we break the cell wall down and we can extract more nutrients. And here's the thing. Any scientist worth their salt knows that what created a quantum leap in the evolution of the human brain was our ability to cook. Because suddenly we could extract much more energy, much more nutrition in many cases, because some things get denatured, by the way, you can lose things, but we were able to extract more from our foods and it created this quantum leap in the evolution of the human brain. So it's, this isn't a matter of cooking is better, eating more raw foods is better. This is a matter of, we need to take this into consideration because how you prepare that food is going to determine whether or not you absorb calories and how your body expends those calories. Wow. All right. Is this, is this rolling okay? Brother, come on. You know it is. I just want to interject as you keep going. This is what eating smarter means. And I knew when Sean wrote the book, because listen, guys, let's just be honest. Most books you read on food, it's basically the same stuff over and over again. I knew it would be groundbreaking. I knew it would be different. And I promised you in the beginning of the show, you'd hear things you'd never heard before. I consider myself somebody who pays a lot of attention to these things. And I'm sitting here listening and I've not heard these things before. All right, so we're gonna go. So we hit the T and the H. The E is energy exchange. It costs calories to absorb calories. This is very important. Now, I was taught this in college, but not like this. Like so many things that I was taught in school and taking a pre-med track, it didn't connect with me. It wasn't visceral. It didn't really relate to my life on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I want to like draw this out for everybody so we really get this today. Sure. It costs 
calories to absorb calories. This entire process, even thinking about food, when your saliva, when your mouth starts to water, it's the production of these peptides that, and, and, and enzymes that determine how you even relate to your food. The swallowing process, the chewing process, churning the food around in your stomach, releasing bile, moving it through your gastrointestinal tract, getting the nutrients through your intestinal lumen to your, you know, to your bloodstream, getting the nutrients to your eyes, to your toes, this requires a massive amount of energy. And this isn't accounted for on those calorie labels because in this domain of what requires the most energy to, to actually absorb the food, protein is the king, all right? We're gonna use about 30% of the energy we consume from proteins just to digest the protein, all right? So we'll just say we consume 100 calories of protein. You're gonna burn off 30 of those calories just digesting the protein. Sure. breaking it down from these kind of complex protein structures into the amino acids we need. And this is the thing, because we have this paradigm where we believe that, especially here in America, folks are eating way too much protein. And I actually dive into the data and show the real numbers on this, but we're not going to get to that right now. I want to highlight an important point. Protein is needed for just about every single thing, every single cellular function, every single thing in your body. When we're talking about these hormones yeah. that we're gonna possibly get into a little bit more, they're made from proteins, okay. neurotransmitters, your heart, your, you know, your, your eyes, the list goes on and on. Proteins are the building blocks that make you up. It's kind of important, all right? Yeah. And that's also getting into the conversation of the quality matters too, but. So understand, but it also is expensive for your body to process those, those calories. So it's like, a, it's, a, it's like a metabolic hack in a sense when we're eating protein because it uses, your body uses more energy to digest it. You use about 10 to 15% of the calories that you consume from carbohydrates to digest the carbohydrates. You use about zero to 5% of the energy from fats that you use to digest the fats. All right. So protein, your body is incredible. The protein is the one you burn the most of in digestion. Then. By far, okay. but it's not even close. It's not even close. And just also note your body is incredibly great at digesting fats. It's, it's really on the money. And this, again, this is a, it's not that why would our bodies do that? It's an evolutionary adaptation because of how important fats are. When I mentioned earlier about the incredible power of the human mind, your brain is mostly made of fat. It's mostly made of water, but of like the, the dry weight of the human brain is about 11% fat, but then it's followed closely 8% protein. All right. So this matters, but fat is so important for there. These are called structural fats that actually help your brain, the stability of your brain cells and transduction. All right. So please understand it costs calories to burn. I'm sorry. It costs calories to absorb calories. This is not accounted for in that nutrition label. Man. It's not, Man. all right? And so the last two, I'll hit these really quickly. Uh, the, so now we've got the covered, now the DM. We're gonna do the DM. D is for digestive efficiency. And this is one of the most important tenets taken away from Eat Smarter is that each and every one of us has a unique metabolic fingerprint that no one in the history of humanity has ever had before us and no one after in the, the the generations to come will ever have a metabolism just like us. And we next week won't have a metabolism just like us right now. It's constantly changing and dynamic and fluid. We know this for certain. Our bodies are so much different in how we respond to different things than they did 10 years ago or when we were a teenager, whatever the case might be. What's changing behind the scenes? Our metabolism actually changes and evolves. And we need diet metrics to be able to change and evolve as well. And many of the diet frameworks are so rigid that yeah. they prevent folks from being able to listen to their bodies. And so some of those things, determining how many calories you absorb or, and or uh, what you're not absorbing are based on digestive juice, secre the secretions of digestive juices, your enzyme production, the, the performance of your liver, the performance of your gallbladder, your gastrointestinal. I can go on and on and on. There's so many things that makes you different, but this leads to the big one here. And this is the M, all right? So it transitions right into the M. So the DM, this one here, all right. So this is your microbiome makeup is a major controller of whether or not you're absorbing calories from your food and what your body's doing with those calories. This was highlighted in the journal Cell. They discovered that there's, there's a specific bacteria in mice that blocked their intestines from absorbing as many calories from their food. 
And so thinking this through allopathic lens, people, I know I even thought it, I was like, somebody's going to think we needed to bottle this bacteria up and right. sell it. Right. So it stops people's intestines from absorbing as much because people literally have, you know, swallowed tapeworms, you know, having part of their digestive tract, you know, removed just to reduce the amount of calories they're absorbing from their food. Right. So we'll go through great length. And if we can get it into a pill, mm. but here's the issue. So many times these things have really bad side effects. We need to get in alignment with what's real. And also, of course, we're not mice. So some folks were like, let's well, not a human study. Aha! Here, <laughs> this is how it ties in with humans. And this was conducted by researchers at the Wiseman Institute. And so, Ed, over the years, like if I, if I have somebody to go and get a stool sample done and I get their paperwork back, I can look at their microbiome diversity and I can tell looking at the makeup of their microbes, whether or not they're obese before I even see them, just based on their microbe makeup. And so what the researchers are bringing to the table here at Wiseman Institute, they took samples from obese test subjects, knowing again, that there's a specific cascade that is associated with obesity and insulin resistance. And they took these bacteria and they implanted them into lean mice. All right. So they took these quote fat bacteria and planted them into mice. Then they took fecal samples from lean human subjects and implanted them into mice. And the mice that received the quote fat bacteria from humans became insulin resistant, gained weight and gained body fat while the Man. other mice did not. Wow. All right. And the last point here to take this into the human domain again, they'd looked at identical twins, all right? These are identical twins, all right? And what they looked at, they, the prerequisite in the study was finding twins where one has a microbiome that's associated with obesity, mm. all right? And sure enough, they tracked the progress of these identical twins. And they found that the twin who had the microbiome associated with obesity and insulin resistance, even though these were in, they were in the same household, eating the same diet, yeah. one twin gained weight and the other did not, eating the exact same diet. And so all of this talk about all you need to do is be in a calorie deficit. Yeah. It, is, it is so unethical to have that to be the, the overarching mandate because there's so many things that are controlling what your calories actually do. It's not that calories don't matter. We can use it as a metric. A calorie is a measure of energy, just like a meter is a measure of distance, but that meter stays the same. The human body is dynamic and complex and always changing. So that calorie measurement has to be something that we have much more flexibility and a bigger understanding. So this is why you guys, by far and away, and I know everybody, I believe this man's the number one nutritionist in the world. When you were talking, by the way, that was groundbreaking and brilliant. And I have to tell you all what I'm thinking as you were talking, just because we're such dear friends too. But I've never done a show before where in the middle of it, I'm like, when this is done, my team's sending me the recording. I'm going back through it. I'm not going to wait till it comes out where we edit it. There's so much in here. So thank you. And thank you for being so generous with the information. By the way, guys, I want to say this in the middle here. We're going to run out of time, which is crazy. I want to go five hours, but... Well, number one, you can get Eat Smarter online anywhere you want right now. And also it's in Target blown up. So we're releasing this the week that it's coming out. So make sure you go get it because you can't get, listen, your hearing is brilliant. You can't get all this just from the show. Yet I can feel like the millions of shares already happening for people. But you went down the road I wanted to ask about next. Just give us a hack, a tip, this microbiome issue. So I'm learning all this different stuff about the gut. And, and how, what is something we can do to clean it up, improve it, get it functioning the way that it should? All right, great question. And knowing that this is really the heart of our metabolism, truly, because it's the front line. You know, okay. this is the first part of you that is getting exposure to the food that you're eating. So mm. your gut microbes are there making some big decisions right off the bat. Mm. And this is kind of a popular part of the health conversation today. We have about two pounds of microbes in our gut. All right. And it's, it could sound really freaky and weird, but this is a very important symbiotic relationship that we evolved to have. We have prebiotics, probiotics, and postbiotics, right? Postbiotics are the things that your bacteria make in you for you that help you to thrive as a human being. But if you don't give them these friendly flora, the probiotics, the food that they want, the prebiotics, they're not able to do their job. As a matter of fact, they will leave your building. 
All right. So we have to feed the bacteria strains, the ones that we want. Now, with this said, uh, in this conversation of the microbiome, you know, we have, we also, that integrates with the human virome as well. We have over 400 trillion virus particles in and on our bodies as well. And so all of these things, it should be a, a symbiotic relationship, but there are opportunistic bacteria, fungi, viruses, many of them that we carry around all the time can make us very sick and even kill us. And the question would be, why would life construct us in such a way where we're carrying these things around? Because they have a role. Everything plays a part. That potentially pathogenic bacteria could be helping to create some B12 for you. They can be helping to create some scaphas to protect your gastrointestinal lining. It's just when it gets out of balance, that's when the problem starts. So how do we support a healthy diversity? Because that's the key word today for really helping to improve our metabolism in relationship to what's with the microbiome. What we know in the data now, this is, this is where we at. As your diversity of microbes goes down, your rate of obesity goes up. Okay. This is what we know now. And so what they looked at was healthy hunter gatherer uh, and folks just eating more of an indigenous diet versus the gut makeup of the average, you know, Western citizen, Western world citizen. They found that folks eating more true to their their, their indigenous diet had four times more diversity, five times, 10 times more diversity of their microbes. And here in the Western world is, if you wanna make the analogy of it being like a rainforest in your gut, we're, we have a lot of endangered species and a lot of things have gone extinct that were critical for our overall, overall health because it's not just the weight thing. We've had skyrocketing rates of heart disease every freaking year. Every year, skyrocketing weight, rates of diabetes, Alzheimer's, the list goes on and on. Everything's getting worse. By the way, and mental nobody's... and psychological disorders too, right? Exactly. You just said it. Anxiety, epidemic proportions. The list goes on and on. And so often we think a lot of these things are head things, but the gut-brain axis is where we're really at and understanding that there is this entire world that is determining what's happening even upstairs. It has a massive impact. So what are some walkaway things folks can do today? Well, we want to improve that diversity of microbes. Right. So right off the bat, the number one tip, and this is very simple, there are categories and I share some and you can even Google what are the best prebiotics because we have to provide the food for the friendly flora. And there's some textbook cookie cutter things, you know, Jerusalem artichoke, asparagus, garlics, onion, inulin from apples and pears, but that's missing the point. Every single real food that humans have evolved eating, every single one of them is a prebiotic. But the thing is, in our culture, we are now eating so much less diversity. Even if we're eating healthy, we can find ourselves getting in a rut, you know, like chicken, rice, broccoli, chicken, asparagus, you know, sweet potato. Yeah. And we're just eating the same stuff on, on, on repeat. And certain strains of microbes will literally, and maybe, uh, by the way, the diet might be kicking butt for you for a time, you know, maybe even a year. But all of a sudden, maybe the weight starts creeping back. Maybe all of a sudden you start experiencing joint pain. You can potentially have a strain of bacteria your ancestors carried for you, you know, whatever your, your ethnicity is, that that bacteria, because you're not feeding it, the diet that it expects, that has been eating for centuries, now you strip that food away because of a diet framework and you're starting to have these health issues. You can't pin down what it is, wow. all right? We have to increase the, the diversity. So my challenge for everybody is, we talked earlier about making sure we're adamant about getting DHA into our diet on a regular basis and EPA. But I want you to add in every week, just two more foods, just add two more foods to the mix, you know? And again, every single real whole food is a prebiotic. It's feeding some kind of, of bacteria, all right? And we wanna be a little bit more cautious about doing complete strips of elimination diets and pulling foods out I practice in my, in my clinical practice, I use uh, elimination diets to great success, all right? So there are some things that tend to be big triggers for folks, but we just wanna be a little bit more cautious about doing it, all right? So uh, last little point here with the prebiotics and probiotics before I, uh, before I wrap this point, we can eat probiotic foods, we can take probiotics, but they're not gonna colonize unless they have the prebiotics, all right? So increasing the food diversity and also looking to some specific foods, like I mentioned a, a little bit of a brief list, but there's some interesting ones that we talk about in Smart. There's so many I wanna tell you about right now, 
But I'll just tell you about something that I found was fascinating that was surprising for me, which was cocoa powder and what a dynamic prebiotic fiber that was found to be really? for a specific strain of microbes. Yeah, for a specific strain of microbes that we've got these bacterial DDs and firmicutes, like that's like two basic camps and it helps increase the microbes that is most associated with leanness. You know, so just really interesting stuff like that, that you might not expect, you know, but I just want to make sure people know the data and they can make informed decisions. I got to tell you, so I'm reading your work. And uh, so I, I think overall, my audience is probably a more fit audience than the traditional world, but not everybody, right? This is a very big audience of different types of people. And so this idea of food diversity, you know, a lot of us that do train, I've learned, I'm, I'm saying it my layman way, but you know, I've learned over time that my body adapts to cardio, for example, and having some diversity or even the interruption of cardio so that my body almost reboots itself to some extent so that it benefits from it. And I, I'm, a, I'm like most people, I eat like the same six, eight, 10 things most of the time. And I think your body begins to adapt in a negative way is really what Sean is saying. So this food diversity is absolutely such a huge thing. And I want to also think, I'm curious about this, this is not something I bet you've been asked before, but I want to talk about food timing a little bit. So if you, and so under that umbrella, just let you go with it, like intermittent fasting, food timing, thoughts on that. And that is a random personal question in it. So it's a lot to unpack, but your brilliance will carry with it. Yeah. I about, 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 about a month and a half ago, I woke up one night, like one o'clock in the morning, hungry, not, not normal for me, craving, but I eat, a lot, I eat too much processed food. So there's these really good protein bars I've got in my pantry, right? That I just really like. They're really candy bars with a little protein in them. So I walk in there and I eat in my bed this protein bar. Okay, <laughs> so it's just one time I do it. I'm just curious, Sean. Do you know that every single night now I wake up somewhere around one to two a.m. craving that freaking sugar or protein bar now? So just unpack all of that for me. Am I nuts? Is that psychological? Did I do something to my body? Like, what is all this food timing stuff? And did that impact it? Oh, and this is opening up Pandora's box here. This is so good. I'm so <laughs> grateful that you asked this question. This is so fascinating. And this was something I talked about in my first book a little bit, but I really kind of expanded on a little bit more with Eat Smarter. Um, but our bacteria also have a circadian clock. All right. They have like times when they're sleeping, they have times when, you know, other uh, other microbes are like more active. Not just that. It's not just the microbes, but then we expand that out to our hormones and our neuro neurotransmitters. We are we have a body clock. And right now your body clock is kind of lined up and it's looking for something at this time period. There's something that is a little bit out of alignment right here. And this could this could be something that's not even related to diet. This could be something related to stress. This could be something related to something with your exercise, maybe you change the timing of your exercise and maybe you know your cortisol is a little bit high. There's so many things that can go into this equation. And so, but the big walkaway point is this, we all are a part of nature. And this is the thing that gets forgotten as humans. Like there's this veil, there's this veil of illusion because humans, we can basically manufacture our own daytime whenever we want, we can hide out, but your body, millions upon millions of years, and even in this human form, thousands upon thousands of years of being lined up, having a circadian timing system. And it's a very real, your cells have a clock. Your brain has a clock and it's constantly trying to sync up with nature to determine when it's producing HGH, to determine when it's producing your testosterone, to determine when it's producing your insulin and cortisol and adrenaline, the list goes on and on. It's trying to get on a clock. It's dry. That's a major driving force of our biology so that it can automate things. But there's stuff that we do as humans, we just, we can throw a monkey wrench in there whenever we want. Sure. And even still, you know, it's, this is addressing things in a dynamic way, because it won't be some thing. There could be potentially a deficiency there. And this is what I talk about in Eat Smarter, yeah. which is, you know, maybe your carbs are a little bit too low throughout the day. Yeah. Or maybe your protein, like maybe your, your protein needs have changed. Maybe your protein source needs to change. Maybe the quality, like there's so many things. And this we is where food diversity can make a difference, right? If I begin to mix in some food diversity, I may, I may find that recipe or formula. Yep. You're going to, you're going to find that thing that just hits that, that, that desire from your body on the head. Yeah. You know, food is such a major player in all of this, but there are other factors. It's just 
this conversation needs to be had because food literally makes up everything about us. You know, as I'm looking at my friend, Ed, I'm seeing the food that you've eaten. That's so powerful. And we get to choose what that is. I love that. What about the timing of food? I didn't let you finish that. You know, intermittent fasting, yay or nay to you? This gets back to our metabolic fingerprint. And just understanding that the way that we evolved as humans, the, the idea, the concept of like these three square meals a day, this was just something we made up. Yeah. All right. This is something that we kind of made up. And this was an association with, you know, the structure of a workday, which even that is relatively new in human history. You know, the last couple of centuries really potentially brought on um, uh, by the tutors. But looking back to like the times of uh, when monastic life kind of ruled things. And even back, I mentioned earlier, the, the ancient Greeks and Romans. Yeah. Breakfast was really kind of frowned upon and folks generally ate, you know, maybe, 10 after 10 a after mass you know or you know after you know the noon meal would generally be like sometime in the afternoon would be the time folks ate the most also just thinking about access to light as well you know yeah. folks are eating getting it kind of in but here's the thing it's not that breakfast just because it's a newer invention it doesn't mean it can't be used to great effect showering is pretty new but that shit worked out pretty good for us you know <laughs> right. so it's but it's being a little bit more and i, I mentioned a very very amazing study in the book. And basically the researchers said that our, the way that we're eating, the, the when is clashing with our genome, which was really wired and, and developed and evolved and became this robust human being having times of eating and times of not eating. And one of the studies that I cited in the book looked at the, the average day of a human and they found that folks are eating about 15 hours a day throughout that time frame. Basically we're eating pretty much the entire time that we're up for the average person just throughout the day. And that window of time when we're fasting, because what happens when we're fasting is your body really flips a switch into self-cleaning, you know, autophagy, and even the glial cells in your brain, cleaning house, getting rid of stuff. So much energy is used to digest food because it's, the food is, your body's trying to turn that food stuff into you stuff. And so if we can have a time, even what the data showed was that simply having a 12 hour fasting window, right? So this is basically almost what many folks can do just with a little bit more intention. You know, you have your last meal, maybe at, you're finished at 8 p.m. You go to get a good night's sleep because that included in the fasting window, have your first meal at 8 a.m. or whatever you intake. And that, tw that 12 hours was found to improve metabolism, improve insulin sensitivity, uh, support with the production of HGH, the list goes on and on and on. You get more benefits if you have a little bit more of a fast, but I'm not advocating for us to do that okay. because I do have frameworks where we, we utilize this. I'm, I bring it up in the book because there's such great science around it, even regarding longevity, reducing our risk of different diseases. But we can have a normal kind of uh, breakfast, you know, three square meals a day format too. We have to do what's best for us. And that's really what the, the mission is and getting people to tune back in to what's happening inside of our inner world because we're so externally focused. And I believe we can get people these tools and get people excited and get people educated and make this process of learning fun. We can create an entire society of very empowered and, and healthy individuals. Yeah, I listened to you, by the way, thank you. I just, it's my relationship or my thought of what food is. This is why I think the work is so groundbreaking. Like I think now you guys will see more people write books now that Sean's pioneered this about food isn't just fuel. I've always looked at food as nutrition and fuel. After reading your work, like food is who I am. It's reflective of my personality. It's reflective of my mood you're going to learn about in the book. It's obviously fat burning and hormones and all these other things. It's who we are. I've never heard any of this before. And so I want to at least give people the gift at the end because I know what everybody wants. So they had to stick around to the end to hear it. Everybody wants to lose fat. They think they do anyway. And so I know there's like three things you talk about, and we maybe covered one of them already, but there's three things that like are going to blow that apart. You're not going to, yep. you're not going to lose fat if you do these three things. And then just your overall thoughts about fat loss in general, because it is a sign of our times, right? It's what people think about. So give us your thoughts on it. Absolutely. Automatically, we're trying to, to attack something and to get rid of something, to kill something that has actually been developed for our survival. You know, so already just our psychology around it is a little bit twisted. 
your body fat is one of the, it's what's enabled us to make it this far. You know, it's an evolutionary advantage to be able to store energy to use for later. And the, your body is just great at it. That's the thing. It's just doing the thing it's programmed to do. And so with that said, when we're trying to target and talk about fat loss, what are we actually targeting? We have different fat cell communities that we need to know about. And so what we're generally thinking about when we're trying to get rid of fat is storage fats. Yeah. And I, again, just my conventional university classes, you know, fitness training, all that stuff is just like, we have this idea subconscious oftentimes that we're quote burning fat or we're getting rid of fat, but that's not how it really works. We're trying to get your fat cells to empty their contents. You know, these store triglycerides and get that shuttled over to the mitochondria. You know, it's like this really interesting process. And I take people through the entire process in the book, but to just give this uh, basic assessment, we have subcutaneous fat, which is the fat that's just below your skin. If you're trying to target the back of your arms or your, your butt, you'll even there's a there's some on your belly. You can have subcutaneous fat there, but this is the stuff you can pinch. Visceral fat is another storage fat. This is known as omentum fat, and it's what's around your organs. This is what belly fat is really known to be today. This is the most dangerous type of fat as well. Visceral fat is like elbowing around like your your liver and your and your gastrointestinal tract it's just like taking up space in there it's very dangerous but it's an adaptation we needed it for our survival however it's gotten way out of hand there's another type of storage fat that again in when i was in college i was taught fat and muscle are dichotomous like these are two totally different things this is called intramuscular fat and this is the fat that's used on site by your muscles and if you want to think about what it looks like it's like the marbling of a steak all right that is that uh, on-site intramuscular fat used to fill your muscles, but even that can get out of hand and you can get chubby muscles, Yeah. all right? So what do we do in targeting these things? Well, part of it, ironically and kind of interesting is that we have other fats that actually burn fat, all right? And that's in this category of brown adipose tissue that I know a lot of folks have heard about in recent years, but I dig in, like I really dig into it. So brown adipose tissue, it's brown because it's so dense in mitochondria. Right. And I mentioned it earlier, mitochondria is where the contents of the fat cell actually get shipped to burn it for fuel. Mitochondria are so important. And it's brown because it's so dense in mitochondria. All right. So this type of fat burns fat, but we don't have that much as we become adults. Babies have more brown fat. It's like a thermal regulation, like to prevent and protect the baby against hypothermia. But as adults, we have like a little bit like around our collarbones, our shoulder blades, kind of down our spine. And they actually did an fMRI uh, study and they looked at what happens when folks drink coffee, for example. And they saw the brown fat parts of the body start to light up, signaling increased thermogenesis, like activation of our brown fat from coffee. Well, again, like these things are a little bit like there's, it's nuanced. Because even that conversation of coffee, I go into like, what does that actually look like in a way that doesn't mess us up, but in a way that could possibly help us. But the other type of fat, last one, it's called beige fat. All right. And this is going to be new for a lot of people. And beige fat is so interesting. It's distinct from the other types of fat because it can actually become brown fat or it can become white fat. All right. And what we want to do is encourage the browning. We want to basically encourage these beige fat cells to get a little bit more of a tan. And so to, to nudge them into helping our body to actually burn more fat just in a resting state, because the more muscle you have on your frame and brown adipose tissue, it just puts you at a metabolic advantage. How do you do that? All right. So what was funny in the data was, again, coffee was one of the things that was found to actually encourage the browning of this beige fat. And so there's different things, of course, and a lot of people know about like cold water submersion, and there's so many other factors that can help influence this, but we're talking specifically about diet here. And so just to touch on this really quickly, when you mentioned, okay, so how do we actually get rid of this stuff? First, we have to have a better association with it. Second, we need to know what we're actually dealing with here. And the third thing is, and really most importantly, because I actually go through many different foods that kind of control the hormones involved in quote fat burning. But the most important thing is avoiding the things that make your body going to hyperdrive and st storing fat. We want to stop the problem, okay. right? So often like we're looking for something, I just need to take something if I just eat this thing, but it's not going to matter if you're 
you know, continuing the process of what hurts you. You know, it's the same kind of allopathic thinking, right? We give, you're given a drug to treat a symptom, but we're not removing the underlying cause of the disease, right? So, though, and I go through these three things, I'll just hit them really quickly. Yeah, and these, I call these like <laughs> the, 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 the three amigos of fat storage, all right? So whatever diet framework you subscribe to, these three things will absolutely make, not just make the diet ineffective, but these can potentially make you very, very sick and also prevent, literally block your body when I talked earlier about hormonal clogs from being able to burn fat. So the first one is uh, disruption, and I'm just going to hit these very quickly, disruption to your microbiome, all right, dysbiosis. We already highlighted a little bit why that matters, so I'm not going to dig in more there, but we talk about specific things, and I'll just throw these out there. What damages your microbiome the most? In our kind of modern society, pesticides, herbicides, rodenticides, fungicides, these are designed to destroy very, very small things. You are made of very, very small things. They're either estrogenic or neurogenic to disrupt the reproductive cycle of those, those organisms. It is well noted to be incredibly destructive to your microbiome. And one of the studies I shared in the book, there's 300 pesticides have now been confirmed to contribute to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And you'll also learn in the book how important your liver is in fat metabolism, because your liver can literally just make fat lipogenesis if it's overburdened, all right? So that's one. And uh, another one is feeding pathogenic bacteria. They love sugar. They love processed food, yeah. you know, these pathogenic organisms. So if we can start to shift that ratio just a little bit, we can right. get folks healthier. And I, again, I go through an entire list of what can damage your microbiome. Number two is hormone dysregulation. So hormones are chemical messengers that basically are determining what all your cells are doing. This is driving the show. When we're talking earlier about calories, your hormones are determining what calories are doing greatly because they're letting all the cells in your body know. It's like Paul Revere, like they're trying to let them know the message and what's happening. But if you, somebody's coming along and like, like sniper, you know, taking Paul Revere out, he can't do his job, you know? And so uh, we want to be aware of the things that damage our fat storing and fat loss related hormones. And just, again, there's, this is a big, big conversation. I don't know how much time we have, but I'll just share the, the top two. All right. These are the, the, the two brothers, but they're very different. And their mother is Miss Pancreas. And these are her two loving children. One of them is insulin. And it's opposite in many ways is glucagon, all right? Insulin is incredibly important for our survival. We know about insulin though, many of us is psychologically related to diabetes and the storage of energy. It's critical for us to have it. But when insulin gets cattywampus and starts doing its job too much, we can get into a place where those metabolic DMs, basically we're getting flooded so much that it starts to go to spam, all right? And your body can't hear insulin signal, signal anymore and so you have insulin resistance and your liver will just, with all that blood, the sugar in your bloodstream is incredibly dangerous. Your liver will just start printing out lipogenesis, just start making fat. And so on the opposite side, glucagon removes the energy from the cell so that it can be used by your body. But glucagon does not act. This is a dichotomous thing. It does not act unless insulin can sit his butt down somewhere. All right. So we have to know how to modulate and manage these two. And then wow. I go through many other in the book. Last thing is hunger and the, the hunger and satiety hormones. When we have dysfunction with these, and it, this goes back to the original story I told about Dr. Lulu Hunt-Peters encouraging us to be hunger, hungry. If there's dysfunction with our hunger and satiety related hormones, the diet is destined to fail. I know how powerful we can be. I know you and I both have incredible willpower, but your biology will ultimately win out. And so we want to make sure that we're providing ourselves, our biology. Again, chronic nutrient deficiency leads to chronic overeating. All right. So we've got to get these hunger and satiety hormones in check. The two big bosses or captains of the team, ghrelin is the hunger hormone. Leptin is the satiety hormone, but we go through all the rest of them. We talk about CCK, we talk about GLP-1, we talk about adiponectin and specific nutrients that can get all of those guys doing their jobs. Has anyone ever listened to a podcast in their life where there was not one wasted second? I mean, like literally not one wasted second of time. 
And it was really cool is because I love you and I know you. I opened up, made this big old bold proclamation, and then you like blew it out of the water. And this is one of those shows, you guys, I'm just going to encourage you to do two things. One, you need to share this show. But two, you got to listen to it or watch it again. There's no way you got all of this the first time. And the third thing is you need to get this book. You need to get Eat Smarter because it's we've just skimmed the surface of the things that you need to know. And the work is unique. The approach is unique. It's groundbreaking. In five or eight years, everybody will be talking about these things. Sean was the first to illustrate all of these things because of the depth of his research. The last thing, mostly, if you didn't listen to Sean the first time, you're like, how does this man? You guys, this was all born. All of this man's work, this should give you hope, was born out of his own chronic pain, his own chronic issues. He's like, I need to figure this out for myself. Why do I tell you that? Because for many of you, the very thing that's the worst in your life right now may end up being the path to your life's work where you change people's lives. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Sean, for today. And man, I love you. And I just, you're just one of a kind. You're the best at what you do. So thank you. Thank you, brother. I receive all of that from you, Ed. I, you're, you're one of my favorite people, like I mentioned. You're such a light right now that we all need and a voice of reason and a voice of support. So please never stop. Just grateful for you, brother. I'm grateful for you. Guys, get the book. Share this. If you're watching this on YouTube, subscribe to one of my audio platforms on iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher, one of them. And if you're listening to it, go to YouTube and subscribe because the content is different from time to time on those platforms. Go get Sean's book. God bless you all and Max out. This is The Ed Milet Show.